Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across Ukraine dispel Russian misinformation on British tank rounds, and interview Kyiv independent reporter Francis Farrell on his journalism reporting from the front lines across Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where are Ukrainians? Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of March, one year and 26 days since the start of the full-scale invasion. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. Our guests are former NATO commander in Europe, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, Francis Farrell, reporter for the Kiev Independent, And later you'll hear an interview with Matt Day, foreign correspondent for The Telegraph in Poland. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hello, everybody. Let's start in Bakhmut in the Donbass. So President Zelensky's visited there this morning, or was certainly filmed there this morning. He was there getting operation updates. He was speaking to some of the soldiers in the the region. Now, I mean, he's done these things before. He's been to Bakhmut before. He's been very close to the line of contact before. But I think this is timely, coming just a few days after Putin was in Mariupol and Crimea. Just on that, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about was it was it Putin in Mariupol? I think for, uh, Roland's going to be talking about talk more about this tomorrow. But um, I mean, the online analysts saying, oh, he's, the chin's wrong, the, the double double chin and this, that and the other. I mean, I, I don't know. It it is odd knowing knowing that Putin likes sitting at the end of really long tables and he doesn't like to, he's a bit of a germaphobe. It's odd to see him out out and about shaking hands. But I, I just think I, just, I think we don't need to worry about it. To be quite honest, we don't need to don't need to give it the oxygen of publicity. We know he lies. We know what kind of man he is. He's invaded another country, killed thousands of people. We know Russian media shows whatever he wants. Although it was interesting to see the footage from. Mariupol with a heckler in the background shouting, "It's all fake. They're they're not real," as in there were there were staged actors there greeting him. But yeah, France is going to talk 
more about that, I believe. But um, whether it was a fake or not, I don't. I, you know, it, it it matters not. We we know what the 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 colour of this uh, this guy's stripes are. If that's not mixing too many metaphors, still on Bakhmut. So today's UK Defence Intelligence update is saying there is a realistic possibility. Their their words, realistic possibility that the Russian assault on Bakhmut is losing the limited momentum it had gained partly because some Russian military units have been reallocated to other sectors. So we have seen it slowing down in recent weeks. We think most of the fighting around in and around Bakhmut is by Wagner. There had been these these relatively small gains to the southwest and the northwest on the high ground around the city, but it seems as if they've been pushed back slightly to the southwest. Regardless, they've not been able to cut off the 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 road out to the southwest that still supplies supplies Ukrainian troops in there. So the fight for Bakhmut is by no means by no means over. Elsewhere, let's go down to Crimea. The Russian installed governor of Sevastopol, that's the port in the sort of southwest of the peninsula, he said sailors had shot at drones, a drone attack on Sevastopol, shot at drones with, uh, with small arms and air defence was working. He said three objects had been destroyed. Now, there's video on social media. You can find it. Have a look at H. Sutton. He uh, runs the Covert Shores website. They've got uh, social media footage showing a burning, well, what looks like a burning drone, un- a USV, unmanned surface vessel. It seems to be, well, H. Sutton suggesting it was caught at the harbour floating boom defences around around the harbour. Sevastopol, will remember, is the home to the Black Sea Fleet, although after the drone strikes there, the, the, the maritime, the, the waterborne drone strikes last year, some vessels, and it's thought the entire fleet of Kilo-class submarines, we think they're moving east, going to Novorossiysk, which is about 200 k's further east, and that's on the Russian mainland. So it still is a big a big port, Sevastopol. It, it periodically comes under attack such as this. And even if there's no, if it doesn't sink a ship, if there's no great tactical effect, it does, it focuses the mines there. And um, not least of which it says, it says that they're still in range, which is a very interesting development. Now elsewhere, let's go back up into the Dom and further further north. So you've got the town of Rizhichiv, which is about 50 k's southeast of Kiev. It's on the right bank of the Dnipro River. Remember, we talk about rivers in the direction they flow. So the right bank, as you come sort of south and southeast out of Kiev, the right bank is on that is on the sort of western side, if you like, but the right bank of the river. That's where Rizhichiv is. That was hit by drone strikes last night. There were dead and wounded civilians. Numbers vary. So, but in the low, low single figures or in single figures is what I've seen at the moment. And then Zaporizhia, the city of Zaporizhia, so about 300 k's further down the river. So keep going on the Dnipro River, Zaporizhia. That was hit this morning. That's under attack. So Andrei Yermak, who heads up President Zelensky's office, he said, quote, Russians are barraging Zaporizhia. Residential buildings and the Kotsia Island are under enemy fire. So the island there is is a kind of long strip of island in the, actual, in the Dnipro River itself. But basically it's part of Zaporizhia city. Now, President Zelensky posted a video of that strike and he said, this is Zaporizhia right now. Residential areas where ordinary people and children live are being fired at. This this must not become just another day in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world. The world needs greater unity and determination to defeat Russian terror faster and protect lives, unquote. And that social media footage you will see, it is just a residential building that gets hit. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I can't even try and analyse what the what the purpose is, other than to other than to terrorise. There's no military purpose there. 
And then finally, Slovakia. So the US has offered to sell Slovakia 12 new Bell Viper helicopters. These are the sort of modern variants of the Cobra attack helicopter, which is very, very capable, a bit old, but, you know, it works. Good, good. The Cobra this is. And the Viper is, a, is even better. Now they're getting them. Slovakia is getting them at two thirds discount. So Bratislava agreed to send all its retired MiG-29 fighters to Ukraine. And under the deal, they're going to pay $340 million for a package that's worth more than a billion. So uh, not a bad deal there. And that includes parts, training and over 500 of the most modern Hellfire missiles. They're also going to get 250 million euros, which is about the same in dollars, 270 odd million dollars from the EU, European Union, in compensation. So, you know, not a bad deal there for Slovakia. And if that's what the if that's what's happening in Europe, if, if countries are moving either in service or recently retired equipment to Ukraine under some sort of the, these sort of preferential deals to, to backfill, then that is a, a healthy conversation to have. I'll uh, take a little pause there. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? What are the major political and diplomatic updates we should be paying attention to? Thanks, David. Well, President Xi's three-day visit to Moscow is officially over. It ended with a joint declaration last night that the bilateral relationship between China and Russia has reached its highest level ever. That's our direct quote. On the second day of talks, Xi and Putin signed an agreement bringing their ties into a new era of cooperation. That's a direct quote from President Xi. However, they insisted it was not directed against any particular country and did not constitute a military political alliance. The parties note, and this is a quote from the joint declaration, that relations between Russia and China, while not constituting a military political alliance similar to those set up during the Cold War, are superior to this type of interstate cooperation. These relations do not constitute a bloc, do not have a confrontational nature, and are not directed against third countries. And then they made the usual jibe about the US undermining global security. So where does that leave us? Well, Roland's view, as of course he articulated yesterday on the podcast, and he's now written up in a piece for the paper, is that this, of course, much reported visit to Moscow has proved really little more than a photo opportunity for Russia. There was a lot of pomp and ceremony in the Kremlin's glittering halls, but the joint statement suggests the leaders didn't make any major breakthroughs. And of course, also, there was a lot of caveats that have been thrown in there, as I say, regarding the nature of their relationship. But as ever, when we're dealing with China and Russia, one has to question what they're saying publicly as opposed to what they're doing privately. And so whilst I don't disagree with Roland, I do think that if we are to summarise this as a as a more glamorous photo opportunity more than anything else, I do still think that photo opportunity matters enormously. The medium is the message, as it were. When the war began, China was publicly, and I stress that word because in private, no doubt they were making different calculations, cautious about their dealings with Russia, seeing how things would develop. Evidently, they now think the prospects of a long war and a relatively secure Putin in the short term mean that backing him publicly is worth it. They likewise must have calculated that Western powers would not punish China for doing so, even despite the arrest warrant issued for Putin by the ICC. Ultimately, as things are, there is more for China to benefit from by backing its ally than by not. It's, it's realpolitik. 
Was it always going to be this way? Some would no doubt argue yes. I would perhaps question that. I think if it had been made more advantageous for China not to back Russia, or at least more damaging potentially for China to do so, then they may have been more cautious. It does feel, however, that that ship has sailed now. That said, however, China could have gone further in providing heavy weapons support. They haven't done so. They are continuing to pitch themselves as a kind of peacemaker, a little bit as if they're in the middle on the issue of Ukraine. That may not have always been the case. So again, it's it's not as severe as it could have been. And yet that doesn't mean that it might not get more severe in the long term and also that they might not be doing more behind closed doors. And of course, I spoke about that yesterday. Now, on this question of China, I thought John Hemmings of the Pacific Forum, who's written for us in the past, has offered quite a few interesting thoughts on Twitter relating to China, specifically responding to those who are asking what the US endgame is with China. And he says that it surely has several pillars. The US's ability to survive as a significant power, the US's ability to act as a pole for others, and its ability to defend a version of the current international system. And he goes on to argue, and I'll quote here, Beijing is so persuaded by its own materialist groupthink about the inevitability of US decline that it is linked directly to the inevitability of the PRC's rise. Over time, the US's continued survival and strength will sap that internal monologue that she has been expounding for so long. And he goes on. Ultimately, PRC leaders will have to admit that their calculations were incorrect. I'm not sure if we will ever be able to use the word containment, but I do think we can use the logic inherent in the strategy. Wait out China's ascent, block its attempts at expansion until its own internal contradictions begin to catch up with it. Manage the relationship between wax and wane. I think this is a very important point which can be extrapolated into a Ukraine context as well. Almost all the discussions of endgame assume that the Russian economy will remain robust, that Putin's popularity will endure, and that all that counts are the attritional measurements on the battlefield. They don't acknowledge the inherent contradictions and vulnerabilities in an autocracy, the way that history can suddenly change direction sharply via a black swan event. Imagine a scenario where an armistice were agreed tomorrow, as many advocate for, regardless of the Ukrainian stance, and Russia got to keep certain territorial gains and Crimea. Then, in six months' time, Putin suddenly keels over. He dies. People would suddenly say that that armistice was a mistake. And I think it just underlines that often in war, holding out, holding on, is a strategy in and of itself waiting for the status quo to change. And that is where we are now. And that's another reason, I think, to be perhaps more optimistic in the long term than we are forced to be in the short term, which is that because democracies are more adaptable and resilient than autocratic regimes, if one looks at Russia, one could be highly sceptical of its economic solidity, of this belief that it constantly goes on about that Putin is absolutely secure. When dictatorships fall, they fall quickly and often without warning. And this very, very rarely, if ever, happens in democracies. So for all of those reasons, and I haven't even mentioned the extermination of the Ukrainian people, there are reasons still to be optimistic long term if one questions certain assumptions about what is fixed and unchanging. So I'll take a pause there, David, because I'm conscious I've spoken for quite a bit there.
Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, Dom, I know you have something just quickly to add on this before we go to our guest, Francis Farrell. I would only add that I thought it was very interesting that the, the this deal or the, the series of agreements that have come out of this, I mean, there's a pipeline. Russia's going to build a second gas pipeline to China. And that's about it. The other the other agreements were all we don't like nuclear war. It's like yeah, and me too. And and the other stuff was was a whole lot of a whole lot of fluff, as as our American friends would say, a big nothing burger. So I mean, I think what this did was it it now makes Russia look like little more than an energy provider for China. And I wonder what that what long term effect or maybe even medium term effect that that will have. I mean, when was the last, they don't produce an awful lot else. When was the last time? You looked at anything that you've got in your house and it says on the back made in Russia. I mean, it just does, doesn't happen. So if Russia has now agreed, effectively agreed that it, it is the second fiddle power to China in that relationship, then I wonder what the stands are going to do. I wonder um, we need to get James Kilner back on to talk about this. But you know, if the if the if the power is shifting to to China here, then what about Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan? Where are they going to look? Possibly even Iran. I mean, if 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 power and money and goods and services and what have you going to flow from China, and and Russia is just a great big energy provider with some with some old tanks, then where's the power going? So I think this is this is quite telling. I just wonder if this might be a moment where, when we talk about this being, well, this being an Asian century and in particular a China China's century, China's rise. I wonder if this is the moment where Russia decided to, you know, still still sort of hang on to the coattails, but but just be providing the power for the real the real the real power in town. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom and Francis. We'll come to Hamish Bratton Gordon later to talk about some other news we need to discuss. But first, I'd like to invite Francis Farrell on to this podcast. Francis is a reporter at the Kiev Independent, spent a lot of time on the front lines reporting there. Francis, can you hear us well? And um, if you'd like, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. Um, I'm from Sydney, Australia originally, but I've got an academic background in international security, post-Soviet politics, specifically in that region, and learned Russian and Ukrainian lived in Ukraine previously it's it's really a second home to me or maybe more than more than that and uh, I've been working here at this full-time journalism job since August last year so in the middle of in the middle of the war that's basically where everything started yeah would you tell us a little bit about uh, your work since August then where have you been uh, and what have you seen yeah so I've had a chance to to visit the front line in almost almost all all along the front line, all across Ukraine, so all the way down from Mykolaiv region and Kherson before that was liberated, up towards Kharkiv region, Kupiansk, after that was liberated in September, Russian border areas. And of course, um, more than anything, where where the war is in, is more intense than anywhere else in, in the Donbass, in Donetsk region. So from uh, Liman to, I was in Bakhmut in January in, in, the, in the city. And this time I was in, I was with military embedded north of Soledad, which was taken in January. And also inside Avdivka, which is a city that's similarly to Bakhmut, surrounded on three sides and could potentially be another real focal point of the kind of grinding attritional warfare that we're seeing in the Donbass at the moment. Could you tell us a little bit about your time in Avdivka then? I, I think you've just, you've just returned from it. So um, I mean, w- what did you see there? What was it like being so close and what were the soldiers telling you? 
Yeah, to be honest, that was the day before yesterday, and that was the day after on the map that we could see that Russia made some significant gains on both sides of the city, on both the northern and southern flanks. Uh, the best, most reliable way to hear about that is actually to read the general staff report that you see Ukraine publish every day, because if they say that they've repelled attacks in a place that they haven't repelled attacks before, that in the next village over, that means that the village they were previously repelling attacks in is probably taken now by the Russians. When I came in, there was just one road, just like Bakhmut, one road left where soldiers, civilians, volunteers could come in and out. It was, it was deceptively quiet, to be honest, uh, when I first arrived. But once I was there, yeah, visiting the police station and, and heading towards the hospital, there were drones operating, and very soon it became very, very hot. Probably, yeah, as I, as I tweeted, the most intense bombardment I've, I've experienced personally, a lot hotter than in Bakhmut in January. It started with cluster munitions, then we took shelter with some locals in the cellar underneath an abandoned school. And once, once we were there, they started hitting with more cluster munitions and a lot of... I think probably 152 millimeter caliber shells very close to the school. The whole basement was was shaking about a dozen hits very close. And even even the locals were were saying, wow, that they're they're really going going for us this time. And so it, it was very intense. It was a miracle that the car where we parked it was was okay, it didn't catch any shrapnel. Um and we just got out of there very quickly. But for all intents and purposes, yeah, the, the battles there are, are, are really, really intense. And Russia is using the same tactic as it did in, in Bakhmut because they can't push up straight into the urban area of such a fortified city. They're instead uh, looking to surround it on, on the sides and get fire control over the, the last remaining roads coming into the city. So um, very tough. Soldiers around... None of the none of the brigades currently fighting around Avdivka are authorized to talk to the press. So any contact I had was very, very much anonymous and and off record. But yeah, reports of of really quite quite bad attrition in some of these Ukrainian units. Talks of you know, companies going down from 120 to to five, three or five, just a handful of of soldiers. And again, that's. That's not the whole picture. I don't pretend to understand exactly what's happening in, in this sector of the front line, but it's it's just worth appreciating, I guess, how tough things are there at, at the moment in a similar way to Bakhmut. Those are some astonishing numbers there, Francis. Thank you for sharing them with us. Could you talk a little bit more to us about the what what you know of the sort of the reality on the front lines for these U- Ukrainian soldiers? What what are the issues they talk to you about? What what are they concerned with? And 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 what's your appreciation of their morale? Yeah, so I got a pretty good picture of that in in a slightly different location uh, with a, a different brigade. It was actually a mountain assault brigade, so I guess more one of the more experienced, more uh, I don't want to use the word elite, but kind of more effective, well-equipped brigades in the, in the Ukrainian army. And they're fighting north of Solidar, um, which itself is just about 10 kilometers north of... They've been holding their line very well, but, but meanwhile, Russian forces have, have made breakthroughs in, in neighboring sectors. 
and I actually got a chance to to go all the way to the zero line where the infantry you know, normally press access is is just to artillery or maybe to medics. Very rarely you get access to the to the first line of defense in a, in such a hot area, but. It was a quiet period, so they took us out, and yeah, it was it was a very valuable experience being able to talk to soldiers there where we were, um, just about five six hundred meters away from the the trenches. There were Wagner forces who assault those positions quite regularly, but they've been holding them for a long time. In terms of what the soldiers say, yeah, there's definitely a very tangible shortage of artillery ammunition, mortar ammunition. You know, there's a story of a mortar battalion, basically, which is 12 mortar tubes being given between them, only five shells to shoot that whole day which gives you an idea of, of, of the situation. Yeah, so a, a lack of that kind of support from armor, from artillery, and, and also a constant need for more drones, more eyes in the sky. They, they really stressed that point quite a lot. In terms of morale, they almost, yeah, almost all of them said the same thing, that they understand their job as infantry. Their job is to stand and hold the line, probably the hardest job in in the military in a full-scale conventional war between two states like this. But they they know what they're fighting for, you know, that it, it didn't seem like they were faking their patriotism or anything like that. But they were honest in the sense that they are very, very tired. They have been fighting in Donbass since May last year without any official break, like a two-week vacation, nothing like that. Sometimes they're able to be sent home for a day or two, sneakily kind of off the record, but otherwise they're in very serious need of a rest. So, so yeah, that, that's what it's like on, on the front line at the moment. We have a very difficult period where... You can tell that Ukraine is obviously holding a lot back, holding a lot of reserves back, holding a lot of ammunition back, a lot of uh, armored vehicles back for a future counteroffensive. But that comes at a price. That comes at the price of uh, much higher attrition and much worse protection for, for the soldiers that are holding these, these lines in the face of Russian assaults. Well, you mentioned it just there, Francis. Could we talk a little bit about the counteroffensive? We've spoken about what it might do, where it might come from quite a bit on this podcast. What are your thoughts? What, what should we expect from, from any prospective Ukrainian counteroffensive in the next few weeks or months? Yeah, uh, well, the first thing to, and I'm sure other people have said this here already, is, is, is to remind yourself about the fact that the Ukrainian army is not physically, morally capable of attacking the same way that the Russian army is. It, does, it can't use these you know, huge advantages in artillery, ammunition. It can't send waves and waves of thousands of soldiers in, in incremental, small squad-sized assaults the same way Russia does, especially Wagner, who's using mostly prisoners. It just can't do that. So it, it needs, to, needs to somehow be able to leverage something else to to succeed and, and the other thing is that it can't it can't necessarily use the same formula that it did in Kharkiv Oblast in September because at that point Russia hadn't 
started mobilization. Uh, they had a lot fewer bodies manning the lines and it was a lot easier to find a weak point. And now it's been close to six months since then and the lines haven't moved very far. Russia's got hundreds of thousands of soldiers in and they've been preparing for this exact moment. So there won't be any any surprise. And of course, the Kherson offensive, it's, it's the same. It was a unique circumstance because of the logistical advantage that the river provided. So that's it's going to be a, a huge challenge and and obviously Ukraine has certain advantages. They they hope that these influx of Western tanks and armored vehicles will be able to do something, will be able to make a difference, although they need to come in in large quantities before that can really be tangible. And then it comes down to planning and execution, whether whether they can pull it off. It's it's really it's really going to be probably one of the most crucial moments of the war because it will decide whether you know we will have dynamism, we will have the front moving, we will have significant strategic logistical consequences for for certain territories being liberated, other territories now being threatened. You know, you talk about this push through the south, being able to reach the Crimean bridge and cut off Crimea, all that. But if it if it doesn't have that breakthrough effect, then then that's probably a sign of of the war kind of inching towards more of a defensive static I don't want to say stalemate because because as previous speakers said, you know, holding on in itself and waiting for instability in, in the Russian regime is a strategy in itself, but in terms of the battlefield could be heading towards more of a, a static situation. This is really fascinating. Thank you very much, Francis. Can I can I ask, you've spent, as you've described, a lot of time up and down the, the front lines. Are there any sort of myths or falsehoods that you see being reported about conditions or, or anything like that, that that you'd sort of like to correct? Or, you know, I'm interested in the gap between what journalists or, or observers outside of Ukraine think, see and what, what you've actually seen at the front. Sure, I would say easily the, the biggest kind of myth or falsehood or misconception would be that Russian incompetence is limitless. Of course, at the start, there was this viral viral video with one Ukrainian soldier saying, you know, thank God they're so stupid. And, and, and maybe that really did apply for, for the Battle of Kiev. Um, but... But yes, there are limits to to Russian incompetence, and and actually they've had quite a lot of time to learn to fight better. And you know, on one hand, yes, we look at the general staff figures at the moment, and regularly you see a thousand Russian casualties in in one day. You see a disastrous attack in the south of Donetsk Oblast near near Vukledar, where they've lost dozens of armored vehicles and taken no land. But on the other hand, they are making gains elsewhere. They're yeah, on the verge of, of surrounding a place like Bakhmut. Again, I agree that the, the fate of the city is not predetermined, but because they're so close to, to encirclement, the attrition they can, you know, the, the losses they can inflict, inflict on Ukrainian forces are so much higher, and it's looking like a similar situation is developing in Avdivka. And again, you can make fun of them for, for using so-called human wave attacks or, or so on. But the fact is that here, 
they are very deliberately playing to their strengths. They, they know that they might have inferior technology, inferior organization, but their strengths are an advantage in artillery ammunition and an advantage in, in infantry that they are happy to, to dispose of. And soldiers there on the front line, they said, when they, these are single-use soldiers, but sometimes for some tasks in this world, single-use is, is what you need. And so, yeah, I think taking into account the the huge attrition that Ukraine is also suffering it's 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 worth a little bit to to respect those those losses and those sacrifices by by not living under some kind of an illusion that that the russians are just limitlessly stupid with the way they go about the war and i guess the one other thing but back to the counteroffensive which i already touched upon yeah is this idea of Western equipment, Western tanks, and quantity versus quality. Because on the one hand, it's true that I think a, a Challenger 2 or an Abrams or a Leopard is, is just objectively has got better armament, better armor, better technology than a T-72 or, or any of the, the main tanks that the Russians and Ukrainians are currently using. But for this kind of scale of offensive, it's it's true that quantity is more important than this quality, and and yeah, we need to see hundreds of of superior armored vehicles really being able to to be collected, but also to be used in an effective way, command and control, clearing mines. All of these things need to go right for for a Ukrainian offensive to succeed. You know, war. I'm learning about this more and more the more I see, but. It's not just some simple formula where you have some problem, oh, the Russians are dug in, but now, okay, we'll get leopard tanks and that will solve that problem. The, the reality is so much more messy and so much more ugly and often sheer quantity, whether it's a Russian attack or a Euro Ukrainian attack, you know, the, the existence of, of larger stocks of artillery ammunition, you know, that... That, that can be far more important than, than a, a fancy new tank or something like that. Francis, before I ask if Dom or Francis or Hamish have any questions for you, can I just ask if there's anything you haven't spoken about that you think we, we haven't mentioned so far that you think our listeners should... I think, you know, I think anyone who's, who's, who's still paying so much attention to, to the war at this point, one year in, is... <clears throat> has got their head and their heart in the right place and, and, and they're following pretty closely. But, but even then, it's, it's easy when you're far away, when you're reading analyses, to a little bit romanticize and uh, like create, detach oneself a little bit from, from the reality of, of, of the human cost of, of what's going on. If, if you know, military becomes, if war becomes an abstract kind of, chessboard exercise then then it's easy to a little bit forget about about the kind of losses what and what these yeah the kind of losses ukraine is taking and what what these losses really look like and and just being there seeing the the whites in the eyes of ukrainian infantrymen on, on the zero line or, or seeing the way they um, say farewell on, on on the train platform. There's there's nothing like you know remembering, stopping, and remembering that to 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 realize how how heavy this is and how it's it's not going to be over soon. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, Francis Farrell, for that. Dom or Francis Sternley, would you like to ask a question? Sure. Hi, Francis. It's uh, Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us. A couple, if I may. When you're at the at the front, what was happening in the air? Is there any so fighter jet and so fast air and aviation helicopters? We seem we hear so little of that side of it. I just wonder what your experience was. And then, secondly, as you move away from the front, how? What's the, what's the change in mood when you get back to the major urban centres? It seems as if life's certainly not returning to normal, but but there's a there's a very different feel, or people are people are people are are living with it increasingly more comfortably every day. Power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just wonder what the what the change in mood was, or if there was one as you as you came away from the front. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dom. It's funny you mentioned fighter jets actually, because on the way back. From Avdivka, we were just near Pokrovsk, kind of major, kind of urban hub for for military, going to a few different directions, and and there was a, a, a fighter fighter jet just burning fuel, just doing a few loops around. So yeah, I've I've seen helicopters, I've seen Ukrainian fighter jet sorties go back and forth. I think as a journalist driving around, you know, near the front line, it, it's pretty rare to, to actually see any any real action of, of of aviation on on either side actually actually firing or anything which is probably a good thing but but yeah both sides are as i'm sure you know very well both sides are running sorties with with both fire jets and and helicopters that hasn't slowed up but it's it's quite low intensity because I, neither side has has been able to to get real air superiority. I mean, one interesting thing to keep an eye on will be now that it seems like Ukraine, with the help of all this Western air defense, has won the battle against these mass missile strikes on, on Russian electricity infrastructure. Like in Kiev, they don't turn off the power at the moment whatsoever. So it will be interesting to see... I don't know how we'll find out whether Ukraine can transfer some of these modern systems closer to the front line and and help out in in that respect. But otherwise, yeah, you can hear you can hear rocket artillery, you can hear mortars, you can hear howitzers going off constantly. And yeah, I, I would be a bit skeptical about about occasional reports that that Russia is really having artillery ammunition problems. I think it was the UK intelligence report recently, which does a lot of good work, that at one point said something about very harsh shell rationing or something like that. And, and I thought, well, if, if, if the Russians are suffering now, only now from harsh shell rationing, then, then what's Ukraine <laughs> been suffering from the whole time? So... Yeah, it's it's never it's never that simple. As for morale in the in the big cities, yeah, it's a, it's a good question because you have the the battles in the front line, the most intense they've ever been throughout the war at a time when now it's been a year. You don't have you no longer have the blackouts. The weather's getting warmer again, and it's very easy to feel like life is pretty normal, apart from curfew, apart from air raid sirens. And in terms of the the population, uh, a large large proportion is is still very much engaged with the fight and understands that this is an existential struggle, 
and still continues to donate, continues to volunteer. Yeah, I, I can't speak for, for everyone, obviously. They're, they're, I'm sure there's a, a demographic, a certain portion of society which is, which is kind of slight, slightly starting to get distracted. But that's, that's always how it's going to be in, in a long war like this. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. That, that life in cities is, is more or less normal. That's testament to the way that, that they've been able to defend their country. Hi, Francis. It's Francis. Always a pleasure to meet another one. You spoke very movingly about the scene at the railway stations. I, I just wonder if you have any other instances or individuals that stick in your memory that you could tell us about. Well, there's always, yeah, every, every soldier has, has a story. Every soldier has, has loved ones that, that are waiting for them at home. And, and the, the tragic thing is that so many of them just don't come back. I, I haven't, yeah, a few people that I've met in the front lines then, you know, had brief conversations with maybe an interview or two. And then you hear later from your contact in that unit that, that they they died and 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 sometimes you come back on another trip to to Donbass and you and you meet that that contact of yours and, and you can see over time that you know the systematic loss of one's comrades in arms has has a real effect on on people mentally it's 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 really tough and that goes not only for your own soldiers for for military, but but for civilians who lose their their nearest and and dearest as well. I actually have a I go to a, a group which does traditional um, Ukrainian singing, a little choir thing, and and one day the the young woman who who leads this group just said, "Sorry, I I can't do this anymore. I don't know when I'll be able to because uh, the love of my life." was killed near Bakhmut like you know it's just it's just every day that, that that someone is someone is affected and someone loses someone that that they're yeah the most important person in their life or, or because of a Russian artillery strike or a routine Wagner assault or, or something and and that's that's what's really worth not forgetting about I guess. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Dom, for those questions. But most of all, thank you so much, Francis Farrell, for your time today. I think we should just talk about one more story before we go to um, everyone's final thoughts. This came out yesterday, and we've got Hamish de Breton Gordon on to talk a little bit about it. But Russia reacted to the news that Britain said it would send, well, we've called it in at the top of our live blog, depleted uranium tank rounds to Ukraine. There's been a lot of chat about this, but uh, Dom and Hamish, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have some thoughts. Hamish, can you tell us, what what the news is, what the misinformation is, and actually how these rounds work. Absolutely right, and uh, and good afternoon. I think I think a couple of things. Uh, again, I, it's quoted in the paper. This is a classic uh, Putin disinformation, uh, and absolutely bonkers. Probably more for the audience than the Chinese president, but also the, the nuclear issue. Putin has used the threat of nuclear escalation from the very start to try and keep NATO out of this conflict. And it hasn't really worked. And to suggest that a tank round that contains depleted uranium is some sort of nuclear weapon is absolutely ridiculous. And I'm delighted that the MOD reacted very quickly. That's the UK MOD last night to put out a piece. I must say, I got some very interesting calls from some interesting people when this news broke uh, and yesterday evening. But I won't go into that. But so why is this so ridiculous? Well, 
Um, I can really only talk about British tank rounds because that's what I know a lot about. And the main British tank round that will be going with Challenger 2 is the armoured-piercing, fin-stabilised, discarding Sabo round. Now, the armoured-piercing fin is, if you like, a titanium or tungsten dart that is alloyed with depleted uranium to make it very, very dense and very, very heavy. It works through kinetic energy. This dart comes out at the end of the barrel at about 1,500 metres per second. And there is an equation of, of speed and weight and mass, or mass rather, that when that dart hits the target, the tank it's aimed at, that kinetic energy allows this what's called a long rod penetrator. Again, there's an equation of how much tank steel it can go through. But I think, um, you know, it's it's not a secret that the you know, British armoured British tank rounds like this will, will defeat any Russian tank. One key element here is that actually... Although the Russian tanks aren't very well armoured, the Western tanks are. And I think we're pretty confident that Western tank armour would certainly take a hit from a couple of DU-containing tank rounds from Russian tanks. And this is a key point. The Russian Russians do use tank rounds that have depleted uranium in them. In fact, somebody sent me a Taz tweet today, and I might retweet it, lauding the fact that Russian tanks fire depleted uranium tank rounds. Now, when it comes on to the depleted uranium itself, this is a byproduct of uranium enrichment to create nuclear fuel at about 20% and nuclear weapons grade material at about 90%. So it is a byproduct. Most importantly, it is non-fissure. In other words, you cannot create a chemical reaction with depleted uranium to create either nuclear fuel, generate heat in a nuclear power station, or the reaction to create some sort of nuclear type event. And that is absolutely key. And I think when we look at, you know, so where does depleted uranium come from? Well, Uranium, chemical symbol U, uniform, atomic number 92, 92 neutrons and electrons. When it comes out of the ground, uranium ore, it's barely radioactive. It only becomes radioactive once it is enriched. Where does it come from? Well, about 45% of uranium is mined in Kazakhstan. The remainder in Canada, Australia, or most of the remainder in Canada, Australia, and Russia. In order to, what one does is with the ore, you basically leach it with acids to produce something called yellow cake. You then concentrate yellow cake and enrich it to create uranium for power stations. And as I said, enrich it much more for uranium for uh, nuclear weapons. And the byproduct of enriching yellow cake is depleted uranium. It is very little radiation to it. Interesting, I'm speaking to you yet again from just off Salisbury Plain. We are in a radon area here. Now, radon is a radioactive daughter of uranium. Basically, that means that when uranium decays and its half-life is massive, it's counted in the thousands, if not millions of years, but when it decays, it produces radon. And uh, actually, in my house, I have a radon sump and I am getting radiated every day. There are safe limits of radiation and certainly the radiation I'm getting here is way, way below any limit that would be dangerous. 
and uh, and as far as radiation from DU, that would not figure at all. And just to conclude this piece, again, you know, I have handled tank rounds with depleted uranium really since the first Gulf War, you know, over 30 years ago, and have handled and seen them in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. There is, and much is made by particularly Putin, that using depleted uranium or rounds that contain depleted uranium are going to affect civilians in Ukraine. Well, the number th- one thing that's affecting civilians is Ukraine is the Russians bombing schools and hospitals. The actual DU itself is, is, is minuscule. There have been lots of studies in, around the use of DU in Iraq. And in fact, in the second Gulf War in Iraq, I had a dreadful job of doing boards of inquiries for vehicles, allied vehicles that have been hit by DU. I won't go into it because most of it's confidential, but I have yet to see a study that conclusively says that, you know, the particles released from around containing DU are carcinogenic. I know there's a lot of chatter about, but I think the bottom of the statement from the MOD reiterated that there was no evidence to that. And, and of course, although I can't absolutely confirm it, um, it seems pretty certain that the Russians have been firing tank rounds and no doubt rounds from attack helicopters, which also contain depleted uranium throughout this war. So absolute misinformation and bonkers, and we should put it to bed as soon as possible. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. Dom, uh, as, a, as also, I mean, you're also a former tank commander. Anything to add on that? Well, I, I just reiterate that this is all about framing. This is Putin trying to frame this as some sort of know, nuclear weapon or and Shoigu saying, oh, the, the steps between where we are and, and, and nuclear Armageddon are getting fewer every day. I mean, it's just rubbish. We shouldn't give into it. I mean, and this this idea when they're saying, oh, they're sending the Challenger 2s with the uh, they're going to be sending them with the uranium shells. I mean, it's as if it's as if Britain has thought, right, we're sending the tanks. Shall we send the nice, fluffy, cotton wool anti-tank rounds or shall we send the nasty, depleted uranium rounds? I mean, these are standard tank rounds. These are what they are. It's like saying, should we send the tanks with the barrels or the ones without it? I mean, the the depleted uranium is just, it is the standard tank round that's issued today. And I expect Russia have them as well. I just... We shouldn't give in to this framing. We shouldn't allow them to suggest there's some something special or nefarious, underhand going on here. This is not what we should be talking about. They want to scare people. They want to they want to paint us with the same sort of morality that they have. Classic Russian mirroring. This is rubbish. We shouldn't spend any more time on it. And yeah, you know, just just as as with Hamish, I've handled and fired depleted uranium rounds for years, and I am totally normal within acceptable parameters. Well, thank you very much for that, Hamish and Dom. Let's go to our final thoughts then for uh, this episode. Francis Dernley, would you like to start? Thanks, David. I'm going to end with the remarks of Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, of course, who today has urged member states to up their defence spending after France and others have failed to meet the alliance's target of 2% of GDP. There's been a big annual report that's been released. And off the back of this, it basically looks at where NATO spending is compared to where the commitments are and perhaps where it should be. In that report, it says that the Greece, the US, Lithuania, Poland, Britain, Estonia and Latvia have met the 2% target. However, France, Germany, Croatia, Belgium, Spain and Luxembourg have fallen behind. And Jens Stoltenberg has said that there's no doubt that we need to do more and we need to do more faster. 
He said the pace now when it comes to increases in defence spending is not high enough. I will advocate for a more ambitious pledge than the one we made in 2014. If there was a need to increase defence spending back then, there is even more now. And I suppose I just wanted to end by saying, why why is there this hesitancy? I'm sure many people are asking that. You'd think that what we've seen in the past year would have led to this fundamental reassessment of defence spending. And in some cases, it has. Take Poland, for example. Yet it goes without saying that defence spending is expensive. And in many cases, the decades of relative peace have meant that the so-called peace dividend has been expent on extensive investment in public services or elsewhere. That's certainly the case in Britain. And so what that means is that politicians are in a bind because if they were to suddenly withdraw that funding from public services... You expend considerable, perhaps even fatal political capital in order to funnel that money into the armed forces. And those armed forces may not ever be need to be used. This is why so often you see cuts in the armed forces rather than the reverse. It's easier politically to spend money on public services rather than on armed forces because the impact is more tangible to the everyday voter. But of course, the danger of that is that over many decades, you end up with hollowed out military forces that do not act as a deterrent to hostile powers just by existing. And for too long, I would argue, and of course, Donald Trump, to be fair to him, made this point to NATO directly, European powers have relied on US military spending to protect them. And arguably, they still do. Just look at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and the amount of US investment on weaponry there. But what were to happen if a more sceptical president with regard to this defence spending in regard to funding of NATO, in regard to Ukraine, were to be elected or re-elected and, say, the HIMARS would suddenly stop? It would surely then be Europe's responsibility to step up. But currently, they couldn't. So there is a strong case, I think, for the need to start planning for that potential outcome in the US now, not because it's necessarily likely, but because it could be potentially disastrous for European security were that to happen, not least for Ukraine. So Stoltenberg is right. Decisions have to be made urgently because by the time they're critical, it may be too late. Thank you very much, Francis. Let's go to Hamish, then Dom, and finally to Francis. Uh, just your brief final thoughts, please. Hamish to Bretton Gordon. Yeah, very quickly. First, a quick comment on Francis Farrell's point about Western tanks not being a silver bullet. You're absolutely right. The silver bullet is the combined arms manoeuvre, the modern Western tanks working with artillery, working with air power and working with infantry and and hopefully a lot of training is going on. But my, my final point is that there's a, a tweets buzzing around the internet at the moment of train loads of T-55s and T-54s moving from Russia to the front. And uh, if there are any Russian tank commanders listening, I'm sure there are Russians listening, but any Russian tank commanders, if you are ordered to go into a T-55 to face uh, off what you perceive to the enemy, I suggest you give them a stiff two fingers about turn and march off these T-55s on this battlefield against you know, a very capable Ukrainian force will be less than armoured coffins. But let's see if that materialises. That'd be like going to the tank museum just down the road here and getting out some Second World War tanks. I certainly wouldn't do it. Thank you, Hamish. 
Dom Nichols. Thanks. I uh, just breaking in the last few minutes. Far be it for me to reiterate statements from the Russian Foreign Ministry, but if it, if they are ridiculous, and I mean that in the literal sense, they are worthy of ridicule. Then I then I will. I mean they they seek to treat us as fools. So in the last few minutes, re, re, in relation to the tank rounds the anti-tank rounds, depleted uranium rounds. Russian Foreign Ministry has said this decision will not remain without serious consequences, both for Russian-British bilateral relations and at the international level, where the initial reaction from multilateral structures already indicates the complete rejection of London's plans. La la la. Violating the fundamental norms of international law, London must not forget it will have to bear full responsibility. I mean, really? Russian-British bilateral relations? Guys, you're worrying about that now? Mm, Yeah. Secondly, what are these multilateral structures who are complaining? I mean, it's all made up. And as for you're going on about the fundamental norms of international law that that we're supposed to be violating, I mean, it's just made up. We do not need to give in to this disinformation. Do not be scared by these people. They are fools. They are clowns floundering around in the dark trying to find any form of words they can put together to scare us. And they happen to have landed on depleted uranium and they are making an absolute mockery of themselves Do not give in to it, people. Thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Hamish. Francis Farrell, thank you so much um, for your time. It was a really moving and and fascinating interview. Would you like the very final thoughts? Thank you. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure to to share the floor with these other esteemed guests. And I'll be just very brief. Yeah, as, as my fellow guests have outlined the political situation pretty well, it seems everyone is more or less dug in and we more or less understand on the battlefield as well what the resources of both sides are now, what the capabilities, what the strengths and weaknesses are. And uh, in terms of of really seeing what happens in in the spring-summer campaign, it it comes down to to how the actual operations pan out, how how Ukraine's offensive, how Russia's offensive goes. And and that's, that's what will really... I guess now define the next round of, of political changes that might might come in the future. So yeah, all eyes on the battlefield. Poland is one of the countries that has been especially affected by the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We've talked previously about Poland accepting hundreds of thousands of refugees, but there's another military side to the story as well. Poland is building up its armed forces. I spoke to our correspondent Matthew Day about what's happening in Poland, how the people are reacting to it, and what it might mean for the future of Poland, Europe, and the world. Here's our conversation. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. You've been spending a lot of time reporting on Poland and what's happening in Poland. Poland is spending a huge amount of money refitting and expanding its armed forces. Can you talk us through the strategic thinking here? Well, the main priority for Poland is to counter the threat with Russia. Even before the war in Ukraine, Poland was banging on, basically saying that Russia under Putin is becoming more and more imperial. It is a threat to Western security, Western economic interests. And because of that, they began to they began to modernize their armed forces. You have to remember as well that a lot of the Polish armed forces, they had Soviet-era equipment. Now they were part of NATO as well. They had to get rid of this Soviet era equipment to make sure that everything is NATO compliant. So, but the main thing in their eyes was the threat of Russia. And all these fears they had now clearly materialized with the invasion of Ukraine. 
and following the invasion of Ukraine, they have just accelerated their purchasing, their procurement policies, and now orders are kind of flying off the shelves at a bewildering pace. I actually lose track of what's being ordered from who and from and from when and when's this kit going to arrive. Some of it's already arriving, and a lot of it's also tied up with offset deals as well. So some would be imported, but others others would be co-manufactured in Poland. And Matt, I know you said sometimes you lose track because there's so much stuff coming in, but could you just give us some of the top lines, a sense of what, what's being bought? Where, where are the poles shopping and what are they shopping for? Well, I'll give you a few of the headlines. So, so they've ordered like 1,000 K- K2 main battle tanks from South Korea. South Korea has emerged as a big partner for Poland. You know, 1,000 tanks. 250 of the latest version of the US-made Abrams tanks. Not old, but brand new. 96 Apache helicopters. 18 HIMAR launchers from the United States, of course. Around about 600 K9 self-propelled guns from South Korea as well. And going back to the tanks, we have... 1,000 K2, you have 250 Abrams tanks, the latest version. I think Poland has also ordered like 150 of the older version of the Abrams tanks. That's like a stopgap measure because a lot of their kit is being sent to, Polish kit is being sent to Ukraine. So they're a bit shorter on tanks now. So these older, older Abrams can just be shipped over and integrated into the Polish army very quickly. And... All these, you know, as I said, they're the kind of like the headline grabbing purchases. But underneath all that, you have many, many more like uh, contracts for thousands of rifles, for body armor, for all the little bits and pieces that make an army work. And then, of course, you have to remember as well that uh, Poland wants to expand its army to 300,000, which is a, a very big army. And to do that, you have to offer a good rate of pay, you have to offer all the nice little perks like a good pension, and that is going to cost a huge amount as well so that's a big bundle of money on top of all the hardware that you're buying and every week now it appears that a contract is being signed because there there isn't, there isn't any really like tender process with a lot of these things the Polish government is just saying that is what we want give us an offer and we'll buy. And that's what they're doing. Wow. So during your reporting, you've spent some time with the with the soldiers in the Polish army. Can you tell us about, about that? Who did you meet and what did they tell you? Well, I had a chat with an artillery, artillery unit and they're getting these K-9 self-propelled houses. And, you know, you know, it's Christmas for them. They're, they're really, really excited. They had a bit of old legacy kit before that. Then they, ha- then they had a Polish-made crab howitzer, which is really good, but a lot of those have gone to Ukraine. And now they're getting these brand-new guns. They've got the first guns in December, and they're getting more as they come through. And as a soldier, you want to have the latest equipment, the cutting-edge equipment. You want the equipment that you know is going to give you a cutting edge on the battlefield. And they're getting this, and they're really, really happy. And I was talking to a captain and he said, not only do they have that, but they're also, this kit that they're getting now is going to be upgraded very, very quickly because uh, they get, the ones they're getting are from South Korea, but they're going to be integrated into a Polish package uh, very, very quickly. So not only are these guns 
are going to be very new. But they're, you know, they're going to be tailored specifically for uh, the Polish climate, for the Polish operational requirements. And as you can imagine, it's just, you know, there's a buzz about it. And I think that buzz goes right through the Polish armed forces, with the possible exception of the Navy, because they seem to be a bit left behind at the moment. Because they're all, the government's spending a fortune on them. And, you know, you know what, what more does a soldier want to have the best equipment in large numbers? May I ask, how is this this going down on on the street? How are ordinary Poles reacting to their government's huge investment into the armed forces? Do you, do you get a sense of the of the people's reaction? Well, when they look at Ukraine, then they think, okay, yeah, we have to spend more. We have to make Poland a country so powerful that Russia won't think about invading. And Poles, I think that they understand that. They realize, they do ask, like, where the hell is this money coming from, mind you? And they they realize that budgets are going to have to be cut here and there. But for the time being, at least, they, there is a sort of grudging acceptance that we live in very, very uncertain times. We have the biggest war in Europe right next door. And you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know how it's going to go on if Ukraine is beaten, you're going to have a belligerent Russia right on Poland's borders, and that's a cause of great concern. So they have, so they accept we have to, unfortunately, spend an, an awful lot of money on modernising our our armed forces. But that's a price to pay for independence. You mentioned just then that Poles themselves are asking, you know, where, where the hell is this money coming from? Do we know? How, how is the Polish government working its finances and to, to fund this? To give you a couple of figures, like apparently the Polish government by 2035 plans to spend £85 billion pounds on guns and bombs. Maybe £24 billion this year, which is £24 billion, pounds, of course, this year alone, which is a huge amount of money. I think it will make Poland the biggest spender in NATO per capita out of all the NATO member states. And so far, the Polish economy has been a very strong economy. It's been a very successful economy. It's been growing every year for like the past 25 years. Okay, admittedly, started from a low base to talk about a post-communist country back then. But the Polish economy is strong. It has been very, very vibrant. And it has given the government a lot of leeway when it comes to spending money. But then again, the past few months, the financial climate has changed. Inflation now in Poland is at 18.4%. I think that's the highest in the EU. And that's very, very high. GDP is predicted to drop away. Poland went. Poland is not predicted to experience recession this year. But the GDP assumptions made, say, this time last year are a lot smaller. So, you know, the piggy bank the Polish government expected to have is probably going to be a fair bit smaller. And but they've signed up for all these defence deals, which would probably mean they're going to have to try and cut budgets elsewhere, like in the health budget, education budget, and their budgets that are already creaking. I think we've had teachers threatening to go on strike, nurses threatening to go on strike last year. And if those budgets are squeezed even more, it could cause well, it, it it could cause people to maybe not rebel, maybe that's the wrong word, but to 
question more the amount of money that is being spent on defence, particularly maybe if you, if you think how if the Ukraine war just drags on and drags on, there's no sort of military end in sight, and people are thinking, well, maybe we have to go for a political settlement, and therefore, you know, do we really need to carry on spending so much money on guns and bombs, which we really can't afford? So just to sort of bring all those points together, I mean, how do you see this this shift in the context of the EU and sort of broader diplomacy? You know, this Poland becoming a major military player in Europe. What does this mean for, for broader geopolitics? I, th- I think there's been a quiet revolution within the EU and, and continental politics since the invasion of Ukraine. Poland was always a, a very kind of minor voice in the EU before the invasion. But since then, it's been at the forefront in the EU of calling for a very, very hard line on Russia, calling for very, very strong and combative support for Ukraine. And the Polish voice has just become louder and louder, and people have been paying attention to it. And this is given... Uh, can add this has sort of built up Polish influence, and by the t- and when you think that Poland is spending all this amount of guns, the defence of the, the the Polish army is going to become bigger and bigger and bigger, and that is going to increase Polish influence because the Ukraine war has shown that uh, you can't really divide, separate uh, economic power and military power now in Europe. The two sort of go hand in hand. You can't just be, like Germany was, an economic power, but not have the military power behind you. And Poland is going to build up its military power. Its economic power is, is also growing at the same time. So what you could have is kind of slight shift in power away from the traditional, shall we say, Western European centres, like Germany and Paris, and going more towards Poland. As it becomes a, a very... Well, Poland is a very confident voice in in EU now, in European affairs, and also in NATO affairs. And it's going to have well, the biggest armed forces west of Ukraine but very soon, and that's going to give it a, a significant amount of influence. Matt, thank you so much for all of this. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is, is important to mention or important for our, for our listeners to understand? Well, one thing I wanted to mention in an article I wrote for the Telegraph a, a week or so ago, but really just didn't have time, is that Poland has these grand ambitions to build up the army. But the one problem, they well, another problem apart from the money they, they may well face is the demographics. If you want an army of 300,000 people, you've got to have a big Polish population. The Polish population sort of has been falling steadily. Okay, it got a huge boost Last year, because we had over a million Ukrainians come into the country and they're settled here now. But on the whole, the Polish population is predicted to decline and decline. And of course, not everybody wants to join the army. Not everybody wants to be don a uniform, kind of wriggle through mud and be barked at by a regimental sergeant major. The army life is not for everybody. So while Poland may say, hey, look, you have an army of 300,000, turning that into reality could be a lot harder than they think. And so, yeah, dream and reality may not meet on that one, but we'll see. 
Matt Day, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.